Welcome back to the BAT Podcast. Howard, Zach, and Alex coming at you. Guys, what's happening? Good to be with you uh, remote, Howard. How's uh, life on the East Coast? We're all remote. Yeah, so I'm, I'm dialing in from New York City. Zach and Alex are at the world headquarters in San Francisco. Never stopped raining in California a few years back, but here in New York, it rained. Uh, Hurricane Ida, we had five inches in a span of probably three hours. Pretty wild stuff. Was reading the news this morning, people riding the subway, trapped on subway cars for 12, 13, 14 hours. Don't have that. Don't have those problems in San Francisco. Yeah, thankfully, everything's just on fire out here. That's right. There's not uh, not a great choice uh, between the uh, the East Coast and the West Coast right now. Maybe Midwest is the place to be right now. Yeah, Tahoe is is rough. I mean, the 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 remote work paradise that was Lake Tahoe is uh, is not the case now. But hopefully, they can get that thing uh, under control. It's interesting podcasting with you remotely like this, uh, Howard. I know you're used to it, but it's uh, it's a new one uh, for me. How's uh, how's it gone for you before? You've interviewed all of your guests remotely, isn't that right? Uh, all of the guests I think that have ever been on the BAT podcast have been remote. I think it's worked well. We use uh, we've been we've experimented with a variety of uh, software, Zoom and other other podcast stuff online, but I think it works well. I think that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me and Alex, basically implying that we're not guests on this podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We're the fillers, Zach, okay. between all the important people. We got to start, obviously, first and foremost, because it's going to be a very short conversation. How is the car scene in New York? Car enthusiasm is great. You know, there's not too much hands-on, behind-the-wheel stuff going on in New York City, unless you're driving a cab around or you're one of the lucky few to have a garage space and a sports car in the city. Um, You know, luckily for me, my bring-a-trailer duties are are chock full of cars uh, kind of in the 9-to-5 window, and I'm very happy to then uh, slink into the city nightlife in the uh, non-automotive sector. But... uh, yeah, no, there's, there's occasionally some cool stuff uh, out in the wild to be spotted uh, around the city. I like geeking out on on the weirdest taxis. I was pretty stoked to ride in, a, I don't even know the model, that Nissan little short van that's like what a Metris competitor or something. I also wonder about that. Actually, I was at the airport last week and saw a taxi that was a Tesla Model S, which... I don't really understand how that works because I don't know if you can drive a Tesla around for eight hours or maybe, I don't know, a quick charge. You can charge it up and get back out there for, for a few runs, but was intrigued with the Tesla taxi cab. Painted bright yellow? Yellow Tesla? Yeah, full, full on NYC yellow taxi. Wow. Hope it's not on autopilot. Uh, for when you just can't quite afford a blade from JFK into Manhattan. Not yet. Not yet, Dak. So, yeah, we, we all survived Monterey. Uh, we were chatting. The three of us were, were down there, and uh, that went well. Hope everyone got a chance to see the coverage we had on the site. A lot of great picks, a lot of great people and cars that came out for that. I think we all had a great time. And some great results from the cars that were up for auction there that uh, FMC RV did fantastically well. Oh, my God. Did it ever. Alex, tell us about that. <laughs> well... It was, uh, everyone was excited about it, uh, to see it in person, excited about it, you know, just being on the site in general with the kind of interesting late model diesel swap and the period charm of the redone interior ended up selling for, I think, $150,000 with a really long kind of back and forth battle between a couple of bidders. 
really exciting. Uh, and, um, I think kind of reflects how excited were, uh, people were to see it, uh, at our, uh, at our event at Laguna Seca. So yeah, we were, uh, chatting before we started recording, what are we going to talk about today as we, as we do every week. Um, so we got some interesting topics uh, on tap, but, uh, what I wanted to start with was we've, I guess, been dipping our toe into the deeper end of the water uh, for cool vintage boats. Uh, some folks may remember we, we did a partnership with the Tahoe Maritime Museum. Uh, we, did, we helped them uh, deaccession, dispose of, what was it, Alex, 45, 50 boats, some really, really neat stuff. Uh, Miss Tahoe. Sorry, I was going to say, yeah, a huge number of wooden boats, really exciting ones, some really big stuff, triple from a triple cockpit garwood all the way down to, to some kind of 15-foot wooden runabouts and also a bunch of super cool marine engines. But uh, nothing quite like what you're about to talk about, Howard. Well, and I, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm just a poser with, with kind of my intro here because I don't actually know a whole lot about boats. But we are going to list, hopefully by the time this podcast goes live uh, on Monday, um, a 1984 Apache powerboat called the Warpath. This is a 41-foot powerboat built by the famous Bobby Sassenti. Um, and it won its category at that year's APBA World Championships. For those not familiar, myself included, that, that is the American Powerboat Association World Championships that took place in Key West, Florida. This thing, uh, you know, unfortunately, we, we don't have any visuals, just the audio, but it's it's pretty awesome. It's uh, what what else? A, a carbon Kevlar hole. Yeah, Kevlar, uh, Kevlar hole, 41 feet. So this is offshore, offshore racing in the era before the twin holes. I think they're all catamarans now, but this is the this is single hole era, 1980s, uh, 41 foot Kevlar. I mean. I always call this a cigarette boat. I don't know if that's the right term for this or not, but big, long bow, three uh, kind of padded cocoon-like cockpits that everyone sits in, driver in the middle, somebody running the throttles on one side. Absolutely unbelievable boat. Two supercharged uh, Chevy big block motors, 1,000 horsepower each, uh, driving two screws. Uh, the thing to watch for when this pops up is the period video of it racing in the 80s uh, through you know, five, six, seven, eight foot open ocean chop where it is literally five seconds of hang time between wave troughs, like flying through the air. Unbelievable. I guess you, uh, I was showing it to my 10 year old son. I guess you have to stand driving this thing. It would probably break your back if you were, if you were sitting. I think that's why you would have to stand in these things, but just incredible stuff, you know, helicopter chasing it along in that video. I could watch offshore powerboat racing with Van Halen in the background like all day long, all totally. day long. Did, did, this also sparks memories of Howard. I forced you to watch this documentary, Operation Odessa. Do you recall that? Yes, highly recommend for, for folks out there. It's it's uh, maybe PG-13 and above, so uh, <laughs> we, we want to keep this family friendly, but uh, yeah, it, Operation yeah. Odessa is very entertaining. Is that the Russian submarine one? The the drug cartels selling a Russian submarine? Well, yes. The uh, sure. powerboat racing in the 1980s around the state of Florida um, 
came at an interesting intersection of another another uh, point of history in Florida's past. So closely related, uh, the players involved in the powerboat scene, high high overlap with some trips to Cuba, and I think that's what a lot of that sport was born out of. But pretty incredible. Would highly recommend Operation Odessa. So Whittington Alex, brothers. The Whittington brothers were racing offshore boats too. They didn't just race nine thirty fives. I think they raced power offshore boats. And I think they also raced um, uh, at Reno in the unlimited class Warbird aircraft too. They raced everything that was super fast. I think they raced everything they got their hands on and they landed their planes on, on the back straight at Road America and Road Atlanta. Maybe not Road, Road America, Road Atlanta anyways. Um, yeah, we could dedicate a whole podcast to, to Whittington Brothers. Um, on this Apache Warpath, Alex, you touched on the twin uh, Chevy Biblock V8s uh with little field superchargers and and the equivalent of kind of straight pipes it's it's pretty awesome um i understand this was in an era where you, you had touched on it uh the boating world was going toward uh kind of the catamaran design and uh Sassenti stuck with this uh kind of kevlar hull and kind of the old style construction and and was successful with it but uh educate me and the audience the shift to catamaran versus what this boat is, what's kind of the, uh, the, the for dummies 101 explanation of that? Oh man, well, I'm super out of my depth on this. Although texting some of my, my Lake County friends uh, about boats, they, uh, they gave me a little bit of a, of a layman's explanation. So I think what the catamaran uh, does is it, it gets you less friction contact with the water. So you have a potentially higher top speed but I think um, one of the reasons that some folks stuck with the single hull is when things get choppy, uh, the catamaran uh, is not, I mean, the hull doesn't, doesn't work as effectively in choppy water. So I think even today, the fastest catamarans, which are really fast, uh, see the Michael Mann-directed documentary Miami Vice uh, 2006 on, uh, on, the, uh, on the catamaran powerboat scene. I believe Jamie Foxx and... Um, Oh God, I can't remember his name right now. But the other actor, the the people recreating the original Miami Vice TV show, they're cruising around in a in a catamaran. Um, but the single hole, better in chop. Uh, this this uh, Apache built boat, uh, um, Warpath. Uh, the video has it. I think ninety over ninety miles an hour in chop, which is like unbelievable. This thing has. Been, have you ever been on a fast speedboat, Howard? The speed is unlike any kind of car it's it's crazy even going 50 or 60 in a boat is wild i never have but i have to imagine the, the sensation of speed on the water uh, doing doing that uh that type those type of numbers is is quite something like zach said earlier this is uh, just kind of anecdotal things stories i've heard but you know the the drug runners uh running 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 drugs from central and south america up to to uh florida in the 80s no one could catch them uh, and I think was it Donzi building holes down there. One of the guys building these fast speedboat holes. Then the, you know, the cops couldn't catch the drug runners. So then the cops commissioned the same guy who was building holes to build pursuit boats for the police. I mean, I just love that era. All that stuff is so great. This thing has its power sent through uh, wet sump Mercruiser outdrives, each with a polished aluminum skeg. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you what a skeg is. It was if my life depended on. I, I think we actually need to bleep that word out. Totally. Where's, where's the sensor button? Uh, amazing boat, though. Really excited to see that one go live. I highly recommend uh, folks watching the videos um, if possible. Big shock. It used to race in uh, in the Northeast in the Atlantic. 
Guess where it's located now? <laughs> where is it, Alex? Miami, of nice. course. Only place you want a boat like that, I think. So great. Um, what else? We had, uh, yeah, uh, like every week, we've, we've had a number of interesting cars uh, uh, move through the site with, with really neat results. Uh, one of my favorites was we had a, a 1967 Ferrari 330 GTC uh, in a lovely dark blue. Um, but that got me thinking to kind of the year 1967 and that mid-late 60s period. And I don't know if there was a better time to be in the market for, uh, you know, a GT or sports car. I mean, the, the options you had, uh, you know, in 67 and, and the years surrounding it was was pretty remarkable. So I, I, we thought it would be cool to talk about kind of, you know, a cross shop discussion of, of what would you have bought, uh, you know, in those years. Um, what do you guys think? Well, first, I just wanted to point out, do you know how much the 330 GTC was in 1967? You bought that car with low options from a dealer. What did you have to fork up then? I guess I, I feel like a great historical, like almost like market inflation, inflation barometer is, you know, what did a 55 Corvette cost? And I think a 55 vet cost about five grand. So I'm going to guess that a 67 GTC was, you have the number there, Zach? I do, unless I did this calculator wrong and then everyone's going to slam their heads into their devices. I'm going to guess it was 20 grand. The number I have is $14,200, which adjusted. Okay, 14. I, was in, I was skewing high. That's what I wanted to say mid-teens, but who knows? Okay, that sounds about right. Adjusted for inflation, that's about 120 grand a day. So, I mean, I guess in 67, yeah, your first choice is do you want American or European, right? I mean, so much great American stuff. Uh, I guess if you wanted Japanese, you could have bought a, a Toyota 2000 GT, right? That, that was 67. Um, yes. My, my but, favorite car of all time. I love those cars. I think they were quite expensive for what they were. Um, uh, so I'm looking up, uh, Howard, it looks here like a Corvette in 67, was you're right it's about four or five thousand dollars for a corvette is that small black or big block Ooh, good question i would imagine five thousand for a big block right that's the last 67 last year of a c2 corvette um so could have gotten, gotten the vet yeah you could have gone for an e-type right could have gone for an e-type that would have been up there yeah um, first year first year of the 911 s is 67 um i think nice. that was probably about seven thousand dollars so about half the price Actually have that price pulled up. Ooh, seven thousand, uh, basically on the dot for a sixty-seven nine eleven S. What else? I mean, if, if you were kind of uh, you know one of the Mad Men guys, you know, high earning exec in those days, what else would be sixty-seven? Lamborghini Miura was sixty-seven, right? That, that would have been kind of uh, top of the future food chain or close to it. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, that would be up there for me, maybe the top. Um, I like the weird stuff. I always gravitate towards weird things. So uh, Zach and I were, were, before we started recording, we were talking about ESOs, ESO Grifo, uh, or yeah. maybe um, uh, maybe some kind of, uh, of a Maserati. What, what, what Maseratis could you have bought in 1967, Howard? Uh, what would there have been? Um, I mean, you could have bought a Bora, right? Ooh, is Bora, is that, that would be interesting, mid-engine. Is the Bora out in 67? The, the, we have a Ghibli ending tomorrow at 68 SS, so presumably... Oh, no, maybe I'm late. Maybe, maybe I'm early on the Bora, yeah. It, it, the, the Ghibli would have been it. 
yeah. four seven or four nine SS. I mean, Ghibli Spider. You know, that would have been that would have been the one to have. For me, it somewhat depends on where you are. Like I would, I kind of imagine myself in something different if I'm cruising the streets of LA in '67 rather than maybe cruising around Long Island. Uh, I uh, I think uh, I think of kind of you know Isto or Maserati Ferrari maybe a little more East Coast. I feel like if I was in in LA, I'd want you know a little bit lighter, nimbler, uh, you know something to something to drive drive up the PCH to Malibu like a like a 911. But dude, that was yeah, that, yeah. First year of the 911 S. That that's an interesting one, Zach. I don't know if you've got the uh, uh, MSRP of those on tap, but I mean that that was total golden era of Detroit, right? I, mean, I kind of resent the fact that we're having this conversation topic, and we're all just going to universally agree: you just want a 911, no matter what year, <laughs> what time period. Just go buy a 911. See, I'm, uh, I'm definitely I'm not in that camp. I mean, what you could get? I mean, Yanko 67 Camaro. Hell yeah. Uh, actually, was Yanko modifying those first year? I don't know. Um, uh, one curveball for those, you know, you're you're a sporting man. You want a big V12, fast car, a little bit of flash, but maybe you've got two kids in 1967. Lamborghini Espada, first year, 68, Ooh. overlap year, total total weirdo. But I think that's actually a pretty strong pull. Man, that's a Howard's just he's wincing like, yes, at the fact totally. that I, I actually I love those cars so much. I think they're really really cool. Uh, I would love to do that. We actually have a guy. Brief sidebar: We have a guy who bought one. I think from Jason at Denworks, um, who is trying to drive his Espada right now across the country after purchasing it. He's made two or three aborted attempts, and he's gonna he's gonna go again. But we're eventually gonna get a success story from him for the site. So a little tease for that, uh, uh, which is a pretty epic adventure. Uh, driving in the spot across country in period would have been an amazing thing to do. I think that's a car you can drive 150 miles an hour in all day long, probably. Yeah, all day till the inevitable engine rebuild. But up until that point, pretty amazing. Uh, also odd curveball for maybe the guy that's lusting after the 2000 GT and it's probably an international buyer, but Toyota Sport 800s are among my favorite funky old Japanese cars. And that would be a super strong pull for anyone living inner city lifestyle. Again, probably overseas. We, we can we can move to a second to more, uh, yeah, more affordable stuff, but uh, you could have bought a Cobra, right? That would have been up there. Uh, Ooh, nice, good pull. Maybe, maybe new or slightly used. E-type? Um, you could buy an E-type? E-type, if, if we're really talking top of the heap, totally inaccessible, but we know I'm an Alfa Romeo fan. Uh, you could have bought a Tipo 33 Stradale. I think they only made 18 or 20 of them. So you weren't going to get one of those unless you were somebody or you were, uh, you know, Jochen Rint or you were, uh, you know, current F1 driver or, or a team owner or, or someone of um, of high society. But that's that's up there for when me. Does the, uh, uh, Howard, when does the Montreal come out? Maybe around 1970, something like yeah, that? Yeah, that, that was 70, I believe, right around that's there. That's the same, same engine, right? That's the Tipo 33 engine, that little beautiful 2.5 liter, 2.6 liter quad cam V8 with mechanical fuel injection and dry sump lubrication. I think similar. I, I think that's one of those people that say their they're, uh, they're 635 CSI is the same motor as the M1. <laughs> <laughs> it's, there are similarities, but I wouldn't say the same. Uh, okay, uh, uh, two small, we were talking about small displacement V8s before, that is a small displacement, super cool double overhead cam V8 with that wild, um, I was looking at one down at Monterey, 
with that wild mechanical fuel injection setup that's almost like a whole nother V8 engine sitting on top of the V8 to distribute the fuel. Pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah, the, the, the 330 GTC was cool. That's yeah, more of a 2 plus 2 GT car. Um, I think Alex, for, for the real uh, noblesse oblige in the late 60s, would probably be a 275 4-cam Ferrari. That, that would oh, have been, of course. Of course. Uh, and what's, no. the, what's, uh, what's the Aston of the period? Is it a DB4 still? Is it DB5? What's the Aston at that time, late 60s? No, DB5. DB. It would definitely be a DB5. Maybe even a DB6. Getting yeah. into DB6. Gold mm-hmm. Goldfinger is sixty four, and that's the DB five debut, right? So it would maybe be DB six by then. Yeah, DB six sixty five. Uh, no, I'm out now. DB DB four, maybe a DB five. I can't do a DB six. A little too dumpy. Ferrari over then, DB six. You know, moving on, moving on down. You know, you could you could buy a you know a little Alpha Duetto. That'd be cool. You could have bought you know obviously any number of of British cars, MGBs. Uh, Volvo P1800, that would have been right there in the mix. Uh, man, you know, just even doing stupid stuff like pulling up old photos of a San Francisco and New York or Chicago or, or L.A. city street in pick a year. Uh, it's just cool to, to look at the cars in the frame, right? I, I love doing stuff like that. Um, it's mostly, you know, mostly American cars, uh, but but uh, very often, depending on the city, you know, there's there's all these neat you know, imports and, and, and what have you. I, I like the idea of driving something special in that era of a bunch of big American cars cruising around. Zach mentioned sports 800 Toyota. One of my favorites is the Honda S series. So I think in 67, it still probably would have been an S 600. Maybe it was 800 by then, but uh, one of those little coupes or. Yes, that was on my list, Alex. That was on my list. Um, Panteras came later, but but you could you could have been cruising a, a De Tomaso Mangusta. I think that was until '68, '69. But man, kind of like man. I mean that thing must have looked like a flying saucer going down the road. Yeah, Mangusta, one of the most beautiful cars of all time for sure. It's a gauge setup in that car. It's so sick. The 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 piano the the piano engine covers that open up the Gullwing thing. So amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I uh, Dino Coupe shout out and spider um right around that era it's it's pretty amazing what you could buy at not necessarily the top rung or even a rung down but sort of that like mid-market italian sports car heat in the late 1960s pretty incredible what came out of that time period absolutely buy a buy a pagoda zach cruise around in a pagoda a little bit i'm a little too young for that but (laughs) I, I aspire to be the age where I get to cruise around in a pagoda. Yeah, you gotta have, you gotta be the the silver haired, uh, aging sportsman. Seeing those that. photos of those cars in period is, yeah, it's a thing of beauty. I agree, Alex. Yeah, they're they're really awesome. Di uh, Tommaso Mangusta, maybe the only car less reliable than an Espada. Would you, if you had what? to get from coast to coast, you want and you have Mangusta and Espada. What's your choice? It's American V8. At least I can stop at O'Reilly's on the way for one of them, right? Yeah, good call. Good call. Very good call. Uh, Alex, yeah, you mentioned Honda S600, S800. We, we need, we need uh, Randy here in the mix to talk about all the uh, kind of small bore, small displacement options. But you can get real weird in that period, right? Like Auto Bianchini, uh, Auto Bianchi, excuse me. Uh, we have to get an edit there. Um, you can even go down the road of like Ford Anglias, Fiat 124s um you know fiat 600s there was a lot of stuff that came out of the late 60s that uh a number of them that had super long production slightly earlier but 
I would lump Peel P50 into that category as well. A Peel? Did you just was that a Peel drop? Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> odd, oddball, small stuff to come out of the 1960s. You got a reference. All right, Zach, you've got to get from New York to LA. Peel 50 <laughs> or Lamborghini Espada? What's more likely to get you there? Oh God, yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely the Espada. <laughs> Equal op- opportunity of death in, in both, though. I think burning to death. Oh man, uh, what's um, another late 60s? That's uh, BMW 1600, another reliable, delightful car, uh, a classic now. My late father-in-law, God rest his soul, absolutely loved his 1600 that he drove around in Europe, brought it back to the United States, loved it, claimed it was his favorite car of all the cars he owned over over an entire lifetime. Uh, that would be another great car. Totally, and the real weirdos like what did they they went they went out and bought the Bauer Cab uh, 2002. That yeah. was, there was those were were rare, but they were around. There's a 1600 uh, cab too, isn't there? A conversion on the 1600 as well, I think. That's correct. What about French? Can we go? Are we are are the three of us without uh, googling? Are we able to talk French cars in the late 60s? What what can you get from Matra? Is there a D Jet in 67? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, D Jet stole the word right out of my mouth. Yeah, well, there was there was. Did you guys look at the D Jet that was at our show at Laguna? It's the oh, nicest D Jet I've ever one. seen. Yeah. Huge, the nicest one left. Huge Weber's on it. Gigantic. I couldn't believe it. They're bigger than the engine. Um, and we can, yeah, we can have an open community debate whether whether a DS Citroen is is a sports car or not. But but those were were certainly plentiful. Um, you know, obviously the SM came came a bit later in the early seventies. I love I love the pivot uh, hard left into into cross shop the French. I, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, they're like. When you think about, you know, you mentioned reference to Mad Men, not a show I've watched a lot, but I know the aesthetic and love the aesthetic. And you think about a super cool sporting, uh, you know, upper middle income guy with something interesting. Like, what did people get excited about in the late 60s? I mean, seeing a DS driving around, I mean, with pneumatic suspension. I mean, that's pretty, pretty wild stuff to see in the 60s. I think it would be awesome. You'd stand, stand apart. One of my dad's best friends uh, that he's known for over 50 years now, they met because he was driving around in the late 60s in a Morgan three-wheeler. He had like a waxed mustache and a tweed coat and stuff. I mean, they just met in a parking lot because it was such a weird thing to see. I love the idea of, of stuff like that in period. I'm not going to say I would have I would have been interested in, in a Renault Caravelle, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've been digesting this over the last uh, 20, 25 seconds. Um, uh, Alpine A110 is probably up there for most people. Um, yes. I think that, that, that ought to be, yeah, uh, late 60s. Or, I'm not or sure. if you want to save a few bucks, you know, buy the, buy the Brazilian version, Dean Alpine. I'm not sure if it's live yet, but we have a, a Fiat Abarth Monomil. Is that how you would say it? Coming up, it's about a thousand cc a rear engine, kind of A110 adjacent, almost has some kind of similarity in look to a to an A110, a little bit more angular styling. We have one coming up, uh, either live now or about to be live soon on the site. That's a one. That's a one liter car. I think it's a thousand cc. It's called a Fiat Abarth Monomil 1000. I think is Mon- what it is. Monomile, Monomile, Monomile. Uh, so it's uh, the period pictures from this car was owned by the same family forever of this guy running rallies with rally plates in Switzerland, you know, pulling over to the, over to the side of the road for, for a quick bite. I mean that, you know, on dirt roads in that car, it covered in dirt with stickers and rally plates on it. I mean, that is what a lot of us who run vintage events, we're trying to recapture that kind of feel and look. 
for a long time ago, we had, you mentioned Toyota 2000 GTs off the, uh, at the top. Uh, a couple of years ago, we um, interviewed a guy who's own, who inherited his dad's Toyota 2000 GT that he bought new. This is a site you, uh, story you can find on our site if you just search Toyota 2000 GT. Uh, it's in Switzerland. The same family's owned it forever, and they ran it in rallies, and it's all beat up. And I mean, what a cool car to have in your in your family for decades and decades, and have it, you know, have it have it used in period for events. Super cool. So what I would do to, to be able to get in a time machine and, and go attend the, the, the 1967 Targa Florio, I mean, yeah, talk, talk about golden era in every sense of the word. So if I threw it to the room, all of us have to pick one car we'd want to roll around in. Uh, year established, 1967, location open to uh, individual preference, and same goes for car. What, what do you pick? I mean, I'll just I'll just say it. I'll break the ice. I'll be the I'll do the terrible thing. 911S first year, uh, Los Angeles, Hollywood Hills, kind of mid-century home, the Robbie Pyle dream, right? Like that's it for me. Cruising around in that car up there, good color, maybe Bahama, Bahama yellow. Um, that's it. It's boring. Yeah, that's, that's what I want. That's the life for I me, want. For me, probably probably LA driving in a semi comp Cobra. I think I think Ooh. that's. Pretty, pretty pinnacle of, of, uh, of having made it. Heading out to the big track at Willow every once in a while. Actually, there's no big track. There was no streets at Willow back then. Uh, taking it out there for, for some laps on the weekend. They, they were out at Willow Springs in the late 60s. They, they oh, were, absolutely. They were, there, I think, but there was only one track back then. You could only drive the scary one. There wasn't the streets of Willow yet, I don't think. Well, honorable mention that I think none of us have touched on, but streets of San Francisco, Mustang, 390, Fastback, uh, pretending to be Steve McQueen. I mean, if you could go back in time and do that, pretty incredible opportunity. No, thank you, Zach. Yeah, we, we, did, we did not touch on anything Mustang. Yeah, I mean, GT500, KR67, like that's, that's up there. Absolutely. When was Bullet? What year is Bullet form, Zach? You, you should know Bullet, that. Uh, man, I think Bullet's actually 68. I think it um, is 68. But, um, but it's but close, I, again, close enough. If, if I could go back in time and basically set the trend for Steve McQueen, I would jump at that opportunity. Create him, Zach. Get in there before McQueen. Yeah, too bad. I'm probably like nine inches shorter. <laughs> I don't have that jawline to match either. Well, he had, I mean, like, speaking of McQueen and cars, I mean, he was, what was he rolling around in 67? I mean, he had XKSS. That's a car we haven't talked about. Uh, I don't know if he had that in 67. He had an Oscar, I think. Um, he had, uh, what else did he have, Howard? Uh, great poll, Alex. I believe he did have, uh, I believe McQueen did have an Oscar MT4, um, probably the 1500. That's, that's kind of a deep cut for a car that is... Uh, a bit esoteric. He's racing um, by '67. I know he had a, he had a Lotus 11, so that might be '67-ish. He had a either drove or owned a 90. Not what was it? It was a 908 Porsche, right? Uh, I think it was a 908. It's the camera car for Le Mans later, and it's the car that he won. Whatever his endurance uh, win was, it was Daytona. People are probably going to scream when they hear me not be able to recall this instantly. Either Daytona or Sebring that he won uh, in a in that car. Yes, we, we talked about Bullet, Zach. You're getting the the, the uh, year on that, but yeah, a few years later, he obviously Alex you just mentioned he filmed Le Mans, amazing movie, uh, the classics only get better with time. Um, 
a lot of people forget that movie featured actual, I believe, actual uh, race footage from the 70 race. Um, but that was that was uh, a film depicting, I right. guess, I, a, think a, they, a, I think they did, race in 71. I think they entered that 908. I think it's a 908 in the race with cameras strapped to it, which I believe was some there was some amount of drama. I don't think the FIA loved the idea of that, but I think that's how they got the the race um, the race footage from that. I mean, you know, that's one of those movies where it's barely a movie. I mean, it doesn't really have a plot. I get why a lot of people think it's long and slow and boring. I've heard that many times, but man, if you're just kind of watching it casually, I mean, it's it's the way it captures the era and the way it captures racing. I don't know if anyone's ever actually done it better. I um, uh, don't disagree with you on any of those fronts, though I do believe the Le Mans movie car uh, isn't it an open top GT40? Oh God, you might be right. I think it's modified for the camera. That, um, that could be it. I mean, there's filming. There was filming during the race, and then there was also filming separately, yes. right? Like they're like they were, you know, the, like the Rex, the 917 Rex, and all that. That was done separately. In fact, in one of the scenes, you can see famously the Gulf bodywork pop off, and it's an Elva or something underneath it. You can see the yellow bodywork of the car that they smashed up underneath the uh the bodywork alex i'm just i'm just uh looking at some random stuff uh by 1974 mcqueen had become the highest paid uh, movie star in the world that's probably not super actually that is, that is if you ask me highest paid in the 70s i don't know if mcqueen would have been on the top of the list who, who uh, would be at the top but, of your list i mean it's, but, him and uh, newman, right? it's him and newman going back and forth right the two car guys but also that McQueen was often combative with directors and producers. Mm-hmm. I think he you was. Combative. I think he was combative with uh, with other people. Uh, I don't want to just besmirch his legacy, but a combative person in general. You know, he had a tough life. He was a uh, Marine and uh, was uh, uh, either orphaned or, or grew up in in uh, you know kind of foster care home situation. He was a tough guy, an actual tough guy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, maybe not quite as polished as Paul Newman, who is my hero, of course. Certainly. And, and, who, and who was quite a racing driver, as people know, but, but was quite a racing driver later in life. I mean, he was, he was acquitting himself quite well into his 60s and maybe even 70s. And he was running. We had Paul Gentilozzi uh, on this podcast uh, a couple of months back and uh yeah in, in the 80s trans am series newman was was up there and he was he was doing his thing yeah i think he was a uh another guy that it's just super cool kind of epitome of cool to me both of them you know so handsome and such style icons but he um you know he was somebody who like you know a lot of successful people so driven right i mean when you really um when you really sink your teeth into something like sports car racing if you want to be good at it you've really got to you've really got to jump in with both feet and commit to it, which is something I think he did, like you said, late in life, which is really impressive. Well, it's no surprise that if we're talking about the 60s car culture, that the conversation quickly turns to, to the people and all the amazing individuals that, that shaped so much of what we're doing today. And, and even guys like, like Enzo Ferrari in the 60s that were you know, still young and, and still rising and uh, you know, all the amazing stuff that they were up to and, and that they even hadn't, hadn't uh, accomplished yet. Yeah, people, people often use a term, which I'm not a huge fan of, of the golden era of sports cars, and they apply it to a lot of different points in time. I think you could ask 10 different people and get 10 different answers, um, probably none of which would be the early 1980s, but 
I am a little curious what you would say, Howard, if I asked you what you think uh, the cliche golden year of sports cars uh, is. Would you say it's around the late 1960s? Well, Alex would be would be even more equipped uh, than me to answer this. And a fascinating question, Zach. It really depends who you ask and what age you are. A lot of people would say the golden era, you know, it was the 30s and, and the, the Bentleys and the big alphas and the SSK Mercedes running at Le Mans and Spa and, and all those races, um, you know, in, in the post, uh, post-depression years. Some people would say it was the Vanderbilt Cup era, right? How far back do you want to go? I mean, for me, it's for me, it's 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, European sports car racing, not, not even only European, I mean, in, in the U.S. and Europe. But uh, there is definitely the point being there is definitely not a a singular answer to that question. I, I think it's uh, highly dependent on, you know, who, who you're asking and when they were alive and, you know, what they, uh, you know, what they marveled after. I, Alex, what's your answer? Yeah, I mean, for sports car racing, for me, it's always been, I think this comes from a Sam Posey piece I read in Road and Track years ago. But it's, it's the Can-Am era for sports car racing. Right. So the late 60s, the second half of the 60s, GT40s, um, you know, 917s, the freaking chaparrales, which are so crazy and innovative, the huge wings, turbine cars, ground effects. People are learning about aerodynamics. It's unlimited, which is so crazy. Right. Like, like figure it out. Like if you can make it work, you get to go race it. Right. And that's, you know, I, I guess we're still dealing with the ramifications of all the rules that come down after, you know, people are running twin turbo uh, 917 open cockpit cars, 250 miles an hour down the Molson straight without the wheels touching the ground at all. I mean, that's like, you know, you got to stop it after that. So for me, that's the golden era for, for sports car racing. I would actually, this is going to sound so on brand and cliche, but I would actually, I think there's a strong case for the nineties being the, um, being the golden era for sports car, like road sports cars. Mm. It's pre, um, you know, uh, paddle gearboxes and everything being turbocharged. So you've got really wild supercars like, you know, uh, the Ferrari F50 and the McLaren and the, and the um, career, G, uh, career GTs, maybe early 2000s. But, um, you maybe know. Maybe 110 quad turbo. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's maybe, that's maybe not quite, uh, XJ220, not quite living up to my normally aspirated engine kind of analog thing. But, well, they but are. The, the engineering was reaching new heights at impressive levels. Sure. I agree. Yeah, a, a production car racing in the '90s, huge participation from manufacturers. Interesting. I don't think actually F50 or EB110. They actually did a whole lot in terms of uh, motorsports. But um, yeah, no, it's 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 definitely interesting. Yeah, I, I would say what Alex. Maybe this is what you're getting at, but it's the intersection of of usability and engineering. You can really start to use some impressively engineered cars, just sort of like everyday objects, uh, where you certainly could earlier, but it was a lot more of a commitment and, you know, you had a lot more hair on your chest for doing it. <laughs> We're making jokes about none of these cars will get coast to coast in 1967, right? So, I mean, the idea yeah, of dumping in a 993 or, you know, a Ferrari 328 or a Ferrari, you know, 348 or whatever it would be in the 90s and actually using it. Maybe not in the Ferrari, but certainly in an NSX or a 911, the air conditioning is going to work. It's got cruise control, but it's... Oh, it's so boring. It's not even a conversation topic. <laughs> so, yeah, of course you made it. Where'd you so many things play? in play. I mean, I mean, cross-country trips before the interstate, interstates were built, Alex. I mean, that, that could, there could be a whole uh, discussion devoted to building the interstates. And, and, oh, man. We uh, want to talk Eisenhower. We want to talk about Eisenhower in the 1920s driving the first Army convoy in 1920 across the country after World War One. That's another podcast. 
but you touched on it. I mean, in terms of racing and, and the most terrifying era, um, I mean, yeah, late 60s, before ground effects, before all the, you know, aerodynamic advancements uh, in, in, in the F1 and Indy cars that were so powerful, still on treaded tires. Uh, I mean, it's no wonder, I don't know if there was a graph of like, yeah, peak, peak uh, racing deaths, but it, it, I have to imagine it was in that period. Um, and, and it's a reason why those cars are, are rare today. And the number of people that want to strap themselves into a, you know, uh, you know, Gurney Eagle uh, Indy car is, is a pretty small oh, number yeah. and not among them. The Gurney Eagle uh, Formula One car, I think the only American built, designed and fielded and driven Formula One car, all American. Uh, that, I think, I think it's 67, actually. We're coming back to 67. I remember reading another article years ago, Gurney driving that at Spa. And he was 6'1 or 6'2, I think. Uh, you know, V12, beautiful mid-engine uh, cigar body. And he would duck, he would hunch down in the cockpit to get from 197 up to 200 miles an hour on the straight at Spa. I mean, what what an era, amazing stuff. So great. So, uh, no, this was good, guys. So you're out there and how, how is San Francisco these days? How's, how's the early fall season? Uh, it's got this beautiful blanket of uh, fog and smoke to where it's really seasonally ambiguous is how I would classify it. Hard, hard to tell. It. Yeah. Hard to tell whether it's fog or smoke, right? Early September, one day it's 80 degrees. The next day it's 62. You don't really know what you're inhaling. It's, yeah, it's nice. We miss yeah, you, actually, dude. Do you still own your 911 or can you not discuss that publicly? Or what's uh, what the, All summer we've been talking about what uh, what's happening with that. Alex is... is Kind of slinking away, maybe getting. Yeah, I definitely do own a nine eleven. Um, man, I, I even though I'm thinking of selling that car, I got upsold on some gauge restoration. They're looking nice and clear at this point, functioning well. Red line was raised to seventy three hundred, so the car is feeling oh, great. You, oh, you you graduated yourself to the seventy three hundred chip, huh? I know. I had post break in on the two seven, so yeah, it, it rips super hard, uh, even. Not even for an old car, but just in terms of modern car standards, it's it's pretty ridiculous. So hopefully you'll get to drive it around before it goes. Howard, when you're in New York, do you rent a car at all? Do you drive at all, or it's just complete, complete, uh, uh, complete divorce and separation from driving automobiles? Absolutely complete divorce. I do not drive a single time. I ride the subway. I walk, and it's fantastic. How far does one have to travel outside of NYC to get to roads that are fun to drive on? Um, I mean, it depends where you're from and what you consider fun, but I would probably say, yeah, I mean, at least, at least an hour. Um, but Lime Rock's like an hour-ish from Manhattan, right? Mm, a little farther, depending on when you go. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually, I think I might rent a car, uh, and, and wade into the waters of, of car rental NYC. We'll see if how that goes. Well, we have that uh, great experience where I got this wonderful photo of you asleep in the passenger seat of my Audi A4 silver car rental last time. <laughs> yeah, silver car. That was, that was a great time, man. Is that what you guys yeah. were hitting the, going to Lime Rock? Yes, it was. Yeah. How, great. Is Lime Rock on Long Island? Where is it? Is it further north? Is it, where is it? It's Lime north. Rock? It's like past. Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, upstate Connecticut, uh, uh, Northwest Connecticut, near, near the New York state line. Gotcha. Can you, is, is there any enjoyable driving on uh, Long Island if you go far enough east? 
I mean, uh, so far, I mean, drive into the water, and that's pretty exciting. But I mean, there are there are for, for yeah for for listeners out there, um, we'd love you to to uh, chime in both on your dream 1967 era cars and and uh, favorite driving roads uh, in the Northeast. But there are, there are a few, but it's not yeah it's not it's not California. Spoiled, I guess, other I than the smog and fog but- and fire. Long Long Island car scene is like West LA car scene, right? It's G wagons and Range Rovers and occasional oh, Long Island. Long Island is a Long Island, so you get out to get out uh, east to, to Suffolk County. It's it's G wagons and D nineties and a number of other things. But uh, yeah, Main Island is uh, yeah maybe newer G wagons. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right, gents. I think we're going to wrap it there. Uh, we've been getting some great um, feedback to, to podcast at Bring a Trailer. Um, if you got questions, comments, we're still compiling our listener mail de- mailbag episode. Um, if you want to be a guest, think you'd be an interesting interview candidate, uh, send us an email, podcast at, we'll, we'll talk to you. I, and- would, I would also encourage anyone that has an opinion on what kind of car Howard should rent in New York City <laughs> to please email us at podcast at. Uh, and I think if we get enough, we could throw it to a vote and just have the community pick your rental car, Howard. I actually love that. I don't know. You know, you know uh, uh, inflation takes many forms, and it's, it's being felt pretty hard in, in rental car prices. So, you know, what, what, you, what you could have rented 18 months ago for, for, for your dollar ain't what you can today. But, well, thankfully uh, for you, a, a U-Haul is still twenty four ninety nine, and maybe you'll be driving around in a van at your two next destinations. What's a, what's a Versa cost, Zach? Do you think? Is he, you want to do a little cross-shopping, a used Versa that you drive around here in the city versus yeah. a new rental Versa on the East Coast? What I do love is riding cabs in New York City and, and cab drivers who probably aren't, they don't really care about cars or driving, and yet... They are great drivers. They're so aggressive. No one ever has an accident. They are literally bump drafting and nearly trading paint, you know, going up and down the avenues and, and it all works out. Yeah. I have Somehow a great, great PG 13 related story. Cause I think you get one F bomb in a PG 13 movie about my last New York cab experience that I'll, I'll share with you off air, Howard. <laughs> Do you remember, uh, can you at least share what, what the vehicle was that you were in? Man, what is the the small Nissan van? I think it's a shared platform. Like an S cargo? S cargo, or am I? Is that am no, I S cargo? Is that weird, funky, imported thing? Isn't there a? Isn't there That's a? Isn't years, there yeah. a kind of a dedicated cab Nissan vehicle that like took over from the Crown Vix in in uh, in NYC? I thought I heard that it was like the cab of the future. It's yes, a Nissan. Of- NV two hundred. Two hundred. Yes, that's right. Two hundred is and Beefback. Yeah. And, and then you, you can get the tall roof one if you want to move out of your SF apartment and, and uh, uh, lower your overhead. And then they but have yeah, those no. weird, weird Chinese-built Dodges. They're, they're actual cars from China, but they have Dodge badges here. Have you seen those rolling around? As cabs? Yes. Mm, I got to check that out. Did you say there's an NV200 C-Max version? Isn't, there already, uh, isn't it already a pretty tall roof on those things? It gets taller. <laughs> I mean, it's like they, to me, in pictures at least, because I haven't been to NYC in a long time, they look like like the future that somebody imagined in like a uh, in a in a movie about the future in the 1980s or 1990s. Right. This is what cars are going to look like in the 2020s. And here we are. We've got kind of a, a square pod that moves people around. 
Well said. I'm full. I'm very pro yellow cab, especially after riding in so many lifts and Ubers out here. I love. I love that it just is what it is. There's literally a partition between you and the driver, setting the tone for one another to not speak with each other, and you can just sit back, relax, and enjoy your ride in from JFK. Well, that and and also New York City is is one of the last remaining places I believe where it's actually quicker, easier, and cheaper to get a cab than, than call a Lyft or Uber. So uh, I appreciate that. I like you that. Ever, uh, you ever go down to the, to the subways? You ever ride the escalator down, take the stairs down, Howard, or do you stay above ground? No, no. I, 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 uh, I ride subway everywhere um, when I can, yeah. What, makes, uh, what's, what's, what changes the decision on whether you get in a cab or you take the subway? I mean, depending where you are, if, if it's raining and you got a multi-block walk or, or if you're with a group that don't want to ride the subway at night, I don't know. I don't care about riding the subway at any time of the day or night. Yeah, distance um, and that, number of potential subway transfers, I think, is usually what makes the call for me. But subway is, is by far the easiest way to get anywhere in the city. It's $2.75 per ride. Like, if you need to go somewhere near a subway stop and you get in a car, like, I, I don't, I can't. I can't look you in the eye. <laughs> Great. Cool. We'll go deep on subway talk, yellow cabs, and you can update us on your rental, I guess, on the next Yeah, maybe one. next time we can talk. If you're in 1967, what underground system do you want to ride? Do you want to be on the tube? Do you want to be on the metro in Paris? Do you want to be on the New York subway? Yeah, tell us your favorite East Coast driving road and also your favorite NYC subway route. <laughs> no, and we, we like this uh, pick a year and cross shop. Uh, next time we're going to pick we're going to pick a more challenging year with with fewer obvious options. We'll see how we fare. Um, Is but that no, thanks year for this 2019. <laughs> 1977. Yeah. Oof. Ooh, another. Yeah. I, I'm I'm game for There's that one. There's much more cars at Lawn in '77 than 2019. Agreed. All right, Jen. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening, and we'll we'll be back next week.